You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We closed uh, our course in analytic philosophy, movements in analytic philosophy, by considering what's happening in philosophy at the present time, or within what's broadly still understood to be analytic philosophy in America and Britain at the present time. I'm going to divide this, for sake of simplicity, into three broad camps or categories. First of all, I think there's been a revival of positivism, a kind of neo-positivism, if you like, that is embodied in the projects of those who are trying to develop a philosophy of mind that will reduce all of our sentences about mental states like what we believe and know and feel and so forth and translate those or or identify those sometimes with statements about brain states, neural processes and the like. The earlier version of this project, the behaviorist project, did not succeed. It turned out to be impossible to find a kind of set of observable public behavioral manifestations of these kinds of states that would always correspond with having the mental states. Not everybody that's angry is going to frown. Not everybody that wants it to clear off is going to go out and look up at the sky and so forth. I mean, there's just no way of having a behavioral test for some mental states. But recent developments in um, the science of the brain and so forth have given new hope and new inspiration to this movement with the idea that this is one area in which uh, our language or our talk about things seem to resist a reducibility to uh, talk about physical processes. And yet, um, the more progress that the sciences make here, the more hopeful some people are anyway that we'll be able ultimately to pull this project off. So on the one hand, there's a lot of interest in artificial intelligence, the attempt to construct machines, computers of various kinds, that will exactly mimic what human beings do when we think that when we would say they're thinking or desiring or wanting things and, and the like. That way it would be some evidence or some confirmation of the claim that thought is no more than a mechanical physical process. On the other hand, starting from biological research and uh, neurobiology, uh, chemistry of the brain and so forth, there's an attempt to show that the correlation between various things that the mind does between memory and perception and so forth. There's one-on-one correlations between those mental processes and corresponding brain processes and that ultimately we'll just be able to either possibly anyway the goal would be I suppose ideally to eliminate talk about mental states altogether and to stick with scientific, the scientific language game you might say. Um, Some people think that's very likely to happen, other people think there's no way it's going to happen, that that this kind of language of the mental can't be eliminated or reduced in that way. Even some who are themselves materialists and naturalists don't think the language about the mind is going to translate into language about brain states. So that's one project that I think is going on in philosophy and I take it to be very much in, in the spirit of the positivist project. There are two other at least two other, I think, interesting things going on in philosophy right now, but they're very much opposed to one another. There's the development of anti-realism in philosophy in a kind of uh, full-blooded way by Michael Dummett, British philosopher, and the American philosopher Richard Rorty. And opposed to that 
is a development of a new kind of realistic view coming out in part of the tradition of G.E. Moore, Thomas Reed, J.L. Austin, and so forth, this effort to turn the, the methodology of linguistic analysis and of appeals to common sense and the things we do know and so forth to use those things to try to solve some of the outstanding problems in philosophy or to try to at least offer a kind of coherent view of some of those problems to, to in fact construct systems, to go back to the constructive project of philosophy, not just the purgative project. So first, anti-realism. Michael Dummett is still living today and writing and uh, speaking on this topic has uh, proposed in recent years an attack on realism, an attack on the view that there is a way things are independently of the way we know them to be or we can determine them to be and so forth, independently of language and thought. His argument is that if we understand the meaning of a sentence, to understand its meaning is to understand what would make it true, right? To understand its truth conditions, as he puts it. This goes back to the distinction made by Russell, originally really by Frege, that we can distinguish between the sense and the reference of a sentence. That sentences are true or false in virtue of the thought that they express. And Dummett takes the thought expressed here by a sentence not to be a mental entity, the way that someone like Brentano, for instance, would think about it, or um, probably not Russell. But it's not that the thought expressed in this sentence is something that's just before an idea before our mind or something like that. Rather, it's truth conditions. What's being expressed here is what would make the thing true, what would count as verifying it and so forth. So the sense of a sentence is really a method or procedure for determining its truth value. Now he does, that sounds a little bit like verificationism, of course, but Dummett attacks verificationism because he thinks that some sentences are meaningful, yet we have no way at present of determining whether they are true or false. They're meaningful, but we can't verify them and we can't falsify them either. We don't know how to determine their truth value. The sentence that Spock is a Vulcan is meaningful, but there's no way empirically to verify or falsify that. The sentence, to take a more uh, substantive example or less controversial, every even number is the sum of two prime numbers is meaningful. It's a meaningful claim, but we don't know how to prove it, and we don't know how to prove it false. So Dummett's argument here is that philosophy is going to make progress only if it lets go of, of sort of vague pictures, metaphors, and so forth, and gets clear about the truth conditions of its various claims, which on his view is going to be getting clear about their meaning. So this can look in a way just like Austin's project, right? Re clarity. We're going to get clear about what we mean. But what Dummett thinks when he thinks of meaning is the truth conditions, right? The things that would, how we would find out, right? What circumstances or findings would we be in that would enable, that would make the thing true or false, help us to know about it. So Dummett has this definition of realism and anti-realism that goes sort of like this. It's restricted in a way to areas, domains of discourse. Realism about universal concepts, realism about mental states and so forth. And he argues that realism about a certain realm of discourse, D, is this. The sentences in D are going to have truth conditions, and some of these, according to the realist, might not be verifiable. They might transcend verification. They can't be verified by us at present, and maybe they can't be verified by us at all. Maybe they could only be verified by an omniscient being or something like that. But nevertheless, 
there's something that makes them true or false. There's something in the world, the real world, that makes the thing true or false, whether we can get at that or not. Anti-realism is the opposite view. If it's about a certain domain of discourse, say mental states, it's that sentences about that domain, they have truth conditions, but those cannot transcend verification. They have to be verifiable by us. We have to know how to go about determining their truth value. And there are two arguments here uh, Dummett gives against realism. He thinks, first of all, and for him, realism is committed to what he calls verification transcendent truth conditions. Truth conditions where we can't verify them ourselves. The things that make them true are really going to be outside of our ability to verify. So realists think that there are truth conditions of some claims, even if we don't know what these are. Dummett argues we can't know what they are. In fact, we can't have any conception of what they are, these kind of truth conditions, because all of our concepts come from our direct experience. As his student and interpreter Crispin Wright puts it, how are we supposed to be able to form any understanding of what it is for a particular statement to be true if the kind of state of affairs which it would take to make it true is conceived ex hypothesi as something beyond our experience, something which we cannot confirm and which is insulated from any distinctive impact on our consciousness. We're trying to describe what would make this thing true, but we have to use our own concepts, and on this view, all of our concepts are drawn from our own experience. So how can we conceive of something that would confirm this, which is somehow outside of our own experience? We can't. All of our concepts have to come from direct experience. Now, in reply to this, I suppose you could say, well, suppose we disagree. What if not all of our concepts come from direct experience? Maybe some come from someplace else. Maybe we get concepts just by reflecting on our own acts of thinking, our own consciousness or something. I mean, the ordinary person does think that, seems to me ordinary language, you might say, in Austin's view, is committed to realism here. Just to take one example, the ordinary person thinks that even though we don't know what was Nero's last thought before he died, there was something, some thought of his that was his last thought before he died. I mean, there is something that was the last thing he thought about before he died. We don't know what it was, but it, there is a fact of the matter there. Whereas anti-realism would say, well, if we don't know how, any way to verify or falsify that claim, if we don't know how, you know, what we'd do in order to find out that it's true, then, although it might be meaningful to talk about, it's not a claim that um, it, there's no fact of the matter that will make it true. There is no fact of the matter there. Um, I think that Dummett's insistence here on, on a kind of verifiability is very reminiscent of the verification criterion of meaning. That is, it's very restrictive. It it's, uh, reminds us again of positivism. And the problems that the verification criterion faced uh, were numerous, as we've already seen. We've already done that. We've been there, you might say. We looked at that problem. Nevertheless, Dummett thinks that He's not right here necessarily proposing a verification criterion of meaning in the positivist sense, but he is, I think, trying to show that, or trying to argue anyway, that if we don't know how to, we don't have any method, and of course he thinks that most of the methods are going to be empirical ones, but if we don't have any method for determining whether the thing's true or false, then it isn't true or false. It's not that it's false, of course, but it's not true either. It's neither one. The his second argument against realism is that realism can't explain how we would manifest our knowledge of these kind of uh, verification transcendent truth conditions. As Dummett accepts the later Wittgenstein's claim that meaning is use, 
So if I understand what a sentence means, I know how to use it, when to use it, when not to. But I don't know when to use the sentence. Let's suppose I believe that Nero's last thought was a curse, that he was blaspheming his last thought before he died. So how do I know when to use that sentence? Nero's last thought was a curse because I can't figure out what conditions, when it would be justified to say it. I don't have a procedure for deciding how I would know when that was true and when it was false. Now, in reply to this, that's true, we don't know, let's say, right? But in reply, some are, are simply going to reject the claim that meaning is use. They're going to say, I can understand a claim perfectly well, even if I don't know how I would go about when to, to use it. Like, it's how we go about checking out its truth or falsehood, when it would be okay to say it, or when I would be justified in saying it. I mean, after all, this seems to happen to us all the time. We're listening to reports on the news, reading the paper and so forth, reading a popular science magazine. One I read recently talked about this many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. I think there's probably a fact of the matter. Either that's the right interpretation or it isn't, but I have no idea about how to go about checking out whether it's true or false. And when I would be justified in saying the many worlds interpretation is the way to go, that's the truth of the matter. So this just seems counterintuitive, I think, to many people. I mean, I do think that common sense is committed to a form of realism. Uh, and Dummett here is, is, in effect, using, I think, the kind of ghost, the specter, in a way of positivism, verificationism, and so forth, to, um, to, to call into question or to bring into doubt a skeptical agnosticism here about whether there really is even a fact of the matter. So this is a, a matter of introducing epistemic constraints on the truth. Anti-realism of this kind that we find in Dummett identifies truth with warranted assertability. Something is true if we're warranted or justified in asserting it and claiming it. And maybe other notions that could somehow be constructed out of warranted assertability. If we don't have a procedure for determining whether a proposition P is true or false, we have to give up the law of the excluded middle. We can't insist on this view, on, on the anti-realist view, that, well, the proposition is either true or it's false. And we can't say it's neither true nor false either, All right, for the same reason. That is, we don't know how to determine whether it's true or false, so we can't say it's true, we can't say it's false, and we can't say it's neither true nor false. We just can't say anything about its truth conditions at all. Now, this is odd. It, it gives up a, a very old and uh, respected law of logic that we certainly common sense seems committed to and so forth. Furthermore, we don't really know always what we are warranted now in uh, believing on this view. Um, Dummett himself is fairly tolerant here. He's kind of pluralistic, you might say, liberal. On his view, even though he himself, as you can see, is, is pretty committed to uh, kind of strict empiricism and so forth, his view is, well, it's, it's whatever we're warranted in asserting. And, you know, different communities might allow you to say some things that maybe his philosophical community or his group of friends wouldn't, you couldn't say when you're with them, but maybe when you're at church you could say them and so forth, and, and uh, people would let you say them, and okay, if that's what, you're, if that's what people think you're justified in saying in those contexts, fine. He's not going to try to necessarily uh, bring down the axe on your neck. One of his followers, one of his colleagues, however, Crispin Wright, who's done a lot to try to interpret and extend this model, he argues that many areas of our discourse can't even make it into the, the debate between realism and anti-realism. They don't even come up for consideration, you might say, as to whether or not we should take them in a realist way as you know, having answers ultimately, or in the anti-realist way as there being no 
way of deciding and so forth. He wants to say they're not truth apt in the first place. They're not candidates for a consideration. What kinds of discourse would not be candidates for consideration? Well, on Wright's view, this is not going to surprise you, I think. There are going to be sentences about morals and values, claims about the external world outside of our perceptions, claims of mathematics, past historical events, like Nero, whatever he did or thought, uh, claims about private mental states, and so on. These are the sorts of claims, you remember, that the positivists were saying, we'll never be able to verify or falsify these kinds of claims. So Wright just wants to rule them out in the beginning. The only ones we're going to take seriously are going to be statements made in the sciences, where we can verify or falsify them. So we have the return of a very ambitious form of scientism, only with a velveted fist, if you like. The idea is that there's no bigotry here, right? It's just that we don't know how to empirically verify some of the claims you want to make about God or morality or whatever. We don't know how to empirically verify those, so well, let's just set them aside. We're not going to deal with those. But in setting them aside, they're never going to come up again. They will never resurface. Now this has invited, as you might expect, a pretty indignant reaction from some other philosophers. After all, why should we care what's warranted by somebody else's standards? Don't we already have an idea about what we're warranted in saying? Or what's truth apt and so on? Why should we accept rights restrictions here on what can go into the, you know, the realism, anti-realism debate in the first place? For somebody who is very agnostic and skeptical about what we can know, it's odd how much people sometimes think they do know about what kinds of language are candidates for describing something um, substantive and which ones are already ruled out in the beginning. So there is, I think, within at least Dummett's or Wright's version of Dummett, that kind of anti-realism, a very strong commitment to science. Again, science is the only way in which we're going to know anything about what's real, or in which we can even be, not know anything, but be warranted in saying what's real. A second version of anti-realism has been developed by Richard Rorty, and uh, Rorty is a little bit less sanguine about the privileged status of science as an empirical discourse and so forth. One reason is that he thinks, along with Quine, he's been heavily influenced by Quine's claim that we can't really distinguish between sort of analytical truths and synthetic ones. We can't distinguish clearly our concepts, the, the framework and so forth from content. Or in many ways of putting this, a conceptual scheme from the data of experience that it's supposed to be explaining or operating on. So uh, Rorty is taking his lessons here, not just from Wittgenstein, but from Quine and from Wilfred Sellers. He believes that our concepts develop along with language, that language is in many ways prior to thought. That we can only, this is one of Sellers' arguments, that we only can think, we only have thoughts, concepts, because we have learned the language. So that unless we learn to speak the language, we would not and therefore know how to use words and so forth, we would not really have the related concepts. And there's no way of getting outside of our language and our concepts, that's the argument. So in his um, description of Rorty, Michael Williams tells us that present in Rorty's book Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, but much more strongly emphasized in subsequent writings of Rorty, is the claim that the most fundamental error of our philosophical tradition is the notion that truth is correspondence with reality or accuracy of representation. The quest for truth as correspondence reflects an urge to be guided by something greater than ourselves, the world, these are capitals, the world, the true or the good. 
So this is what Rorty is rejecting. There's nothing like the world, capital W, reality, capital R, that we are trying to be guided by in our thinking about things. It's not just that we might get it wrong. That's the realists. The realists think, not that we have everything right, but that there's a way to get it right and there's a way to get it wrong. On this view, there's no way to be wrong. Of course, there's no way to be right either. There's just the way we are. There's a way to be, but you can't be right or wrong. So this isn't really abandons, at this point, any effort of any kind to solve philosophical problems, which tend to be problems about what is the case. Philosophers just paint a certain picture, one way of looking at things. They describe how we see the things or whatever. They're sort of like poets on Rorty's view. It's philosophy is poetry. And pictures or poems aren't really true or false. You can find them useful or worthwhile for certain purposes or interesting or whatever. And if you don't, you just move on. You don't read those poems. But philosophy can have a sort of role, right? So again, this is a, a kind of a therapeutic model of what philosophy is about, um, going with the later Wittgenstein, maybe even going beyond the later Wittgenstein. Now, it's not that Rorty, I mean, Rorty thinks he's not a relativist because he doesn't think that just any old system of beliefs is as good as any other, all right? His criterion is going to be a pragmatic one. He says, our settled beliefs our involuntary observations and theoretical and practical interests provide all the constraint we need and can possibly have right, with respect to our system of beliefs. That is, uh, we are going to try to accommodate some, some data or other. What he hears says our settled beliefs, whatever those are going to be, our involuntary observations, the things we can't help thinking, right? Or if I open my eyes, I can't help seeing them and so forth. I have to accommodate that. And theoretical and practical interests, interests, right? What, what our projects are and so forth, that would determine what we wind up with. And that's good enough. So he thinks philosophy should, in the end, serve to cancel itself out, right? Instead of searching for true beliefs, we should just do something else. Uh, Rorty writes uh, about irony, that philosophers can promote a kind of irony or, uh, in the culture. is an interesting proposal. Now, of course, not everybody is happy with this kind of dismal outcome for philosophy in which it just cancels itself out. Now, some might be delighted, but they're usually people that didn't have much use for philosophy in the first place. But as Searle says, it's hard to believe that this waving of the hands is going to eliminate the genuine questions we have about things like free will, the mind, external world, life after death, the existence of God, and so forth. In a recent discussion of Rorty's anti-realist claims, Alvin Plantinga cites the following passage, and this is out of Rorty's book of 1989 called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Rorty says, To say that truth is not out there is simply to say that where there are no sentences, there is no truth, that sentences are elements of human languages, and that human languages are human creations. So now what can this mean? Plantinga says, We make it the case it's true. We make it the case that the sequence of marks, there once were dinosaurs, that sequence of marks, is a sentence and thus capable of being true or false. It doesn't follow that we make it true that there once were dinosaurs. We make it that this will express a sentence because, of course, our words are, uh, those kind of symbols are conventional. But surely we don't make it true that there once were dinosaurs. That's going to be true independent of us. That conclusion seems eminently sensible to me and I hope it does to you as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. 
to help us keep this content free.